Uh, good morning, everyone. And Betsy, I think the story of Jonah is such a great connection with this passage, and I didn't put that together initially. And it's just, it's fantastic because Jonah, um, Jonah and Peter actually, I think, are quite a bit alike. And I'm going to talk about more about that uh, later on. And I think they both have characteristics that we see in our world right now. Um, so thanks for coming into our Zoom Zoom church or regular church at the Root Cellar today. Uh, we are going to look at the same passage that I was just mentioned. Uh, it's from Acts 11, and we're going to look at the first 18 verses. Um, but as we read, I, I want you to think about this saying that I'm sure you've heard before, that life is about 10% of what happens to you and 90% of how you react to it. And I want you to think about that as we go through this passage. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we will um, we'll get into our topic. Um, God, I thank you that uh, thank you that you use all sorts of methods to move your word, your love, your grace, your justice, your vengeance through humanity. I thank you that we are offered your grace that were offered um, the ability to repent and to um, est establish a relationship with you instead of um, just the justice piece. Um, help me to speak well today and communicate what you want to have communicated from this passage. Um, if there are things that are distracting or um, rabbit holes that maybe we shouldn't uh, fall down, I ask that you'd help help the right memory stick and the right uh, thoughts as it relates to this stick. Um, I thank you for the, the technology that we have and that um, we are able to, to meet even in this kind of weird way, um, but help, help us to, to, to be connected, to feel connected, not just through technology, but through what you're doing on our planet. In your name, amen. Okay, so I'm gonna read the passage and uh, it, is, it is a little bit redundant if you were uh, here last week, but we're going to look at some pieces that weren't included. Um, this is from the, I think it's the new NIV, maybe the UK version. It says, the apostles and believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went to the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them? Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And it was pulled up from heaven again. Right then, three men who'd been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, 
Send to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He'll bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them and as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift that he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted the repentance that leads to life. So I watched, as I hope uh, some of us did, or I think probably a lot of us did, watch part of the inauguration this past week. The poet Amanda Gorman completely blew me away. Um, I was thinking about what it must have been like for her to get a call in the last couple of weeks at her home in L.A. from some member of the government and to ask her to consider writing a poem at, at age 22 to recite on the steps of the Capitol in front of the world, in front of all of the dignitaries, all of the, the political might of of our country, and then that would be streamed out to the world. I was thinking, did, did she ever dream of such a thing? She's a poet. But then to get the call, the actual call, and then to go and meet with the president and the vice president, and I've seen some of her pictures online. She met with some pretty fascinating people. And then she spoke so well. It, I, I was completely blown away by not just her her words, but her delivery, her poise, her presence um, about this thing, this experiment called America. Um, and now this morning, it's funny, she wakes up after the event and she has the memories of being there and witnessing that event. I want you to pretend for a minute that on her flight home, uh, she, she gets into LA and she's met not with people who are like, oh, that was great, so awesome, rah, rah. But her the, the community that she's closest with just lit into her. You know, you had you stood in front of all those white powerful men and women and you 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 kind of that was pearls before swine. You shouldn't have done that. And and I, I can imagine if that were to happen, I, I don't think it happened, but I can imagine like the deflation and the just the like, oh my, you're killing like this the best thing that has potentially ever happened to me. Um, you, you're you're pulling the wind out of that sail, and instead of reacting like I may have and writing them off or um, becoming incredibly angry, uh, she stops and she goes through every part of that experience from the first phone call, feeling by feeling, detail by detail, and by the end of her retelling the story. They realized that those words, yeah, they came through her, but they really weren't her own, or they weren't just for this small select group of people, but they were for everyone, and she was just playing a part. So I want you to think about that, because that's a very real, I mean, we, most of us probably have some experience of, of watching that or hearing about it, but think about that dynamic of that, that great feeling of doing what you're supposed to be doing, and then having someone... Um, kind of pull, pull the rug out from under you. 
Now let's go back to Peter and his, his encounter. And let's think of Peter's frame of reference. And it's funny that, that Betsy uh, kind of juxtaposed um, Jonah and Peter because I, I think they're wired pretty similarly. Um, maybe at this point in their life, Peter was a little bit more subdued, but he didn't start that way. If we think about his, what we know about him, first of all, he was a fisherman and he was impulsive. Um, as someone who likes to fish, I think there's a little bit of a gambler mentality in us. We like the quick hit, the rush of like we do this and then maybe we'll get something out of it. And he gambles. He takes a takes a shot on Jesus and he leaves his nets impulsively and follows Jesus. He leaves the boat to walk on water to follow Jesus. And then he starts to uh, starts to sink. Um as Jesus is being arrested, he fights for Jesus. A few hours later, he denies that he knows Jesus. Then he witnesses the crucifixion. And this person that he put all of his, all of his cards in, all of the chips in on, on this man watches him die. And then he spends time with the resurrected Jesus. Then he sees the this, this same Jesus ascend into heaven then he's at Pentecost and he watches that Holy, the Holy Spirit move into that space and fill it. And then from there, his life has been almost a high of, of following the Spirit to different places and bringing the healing and the grace of Jesus to the people around him. He heals the lame beggar. Um, he, it said in the, the sermon, two or three sermons ago, where um, he healed a lot of people. And people wanted to, to touch him so they would be healed. But now to this story, he has, a, he has a really crazy dream. And in this dream, something that has been in place for the entire, almost the entire uh, time that the Jewish faith has been around, is upended in a dream. Then he follows kind of the dream and, and the experiences from there to Cornelius' house meets with his people. He experiences the second Pentecost. He spends some time with them. He's, he's just, I can imagine him glowing. Comes back on the high of highs and he's confronted by the people that he loves most, that he cares for most, that probably sent him out initially, the people in Jerusalem. And he gets back and how they found out, I think is fascinating because there, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, not even social media. There was there was no telephones, no newspapers, but he's confronted by the people again that he cares for most, and they say, "You, you went into the house of uncircumcised men, and you ate with them. You went into the house of uncircumcised men, and you ate with them." And as if I were writing this, or if I, I, I don't think it would be. Uh, uh, surprise to any of us if that next verse said, and Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, rebuked them and cast blindness among them and their children for generations to come, etc. No, that's the old Peter. That didn't happen. There's been a deep and profound transformation through all of those experiences in Peter's character from when we first meet him in the Gospels until now. He has learned more and more about who Jesus is and who, who, who the, how Jesus works and how the God that called him away from his nets works, uh, actually works. He responds by telling them line by line, 
emotion by emotion, feeling by feeling exactly what happened. He isn't the focal point of the story. He's not the protagonist. Um, I don't read a whole lot of ego in his retelling. Um, the writers of the Bible, just if, if you're not familiar with it, they're not shy about pointing out major character flaws. Peter has matured to where he can see that his story and his significance is inconsequential in contrast to the God that's moving in the early part of Acts. He's playing his part. So the next question I have, well, what, what allows him to respond this way? Obviously, he goes through all of these experiences, but his reactions have changed from early in the Gospels, from quick-tempered and brash and fearful and controlling until now. This story starts with him in Joppa, where he heals someone from paralysis, and then he invokes the name of Jesus to raise someone from the dead. It says that everyone in the area knew that he was there and heard what he had done. Peter of Peter of uh, maybe a few years before this, my guess would have been out and about, meeting people, kind of feeling the love, uh, spreading it around. Um, he was very interested in uh, kind of his story. But instead of that, instead of being surrounded by crowds, it says he was on the roof around noon, which is a crazy time to be on the roof in the Middle East. Um, and he was separated out and he was praying. He was quiet before God. And I, I like thinking about Peter and um, talking about him because I feel there's a connection to him and his impulsivity and his need for control. And I find hope in his transformation. The experiences that he went through led him to being quiet before God. Peter's identity, it had shifted from my kingdom come or my version of my uh, of thy kingdom come to actually thy kingdom come. So now to the people that Betsy talked about, uh, the people that he met when he came back. And I tried to come up with a good parallel for Peter going to preach the gospel to something in our day and age that would resonate, but I really couldn't. I was thinking, well, what if, what if Joel went off to somewhere and met with some people and I really couldn't think of any people group that our community would say, oh, no, they don't need the gospel. Or, no, they don't need this repentance that leads to life. Um, I think, I think we're, we're pretty sound in our theology there. We realize our need for the gospel, and we realize that the world needs this repentance that leads to life. But this wasn't the case then. The people in Jerusalem, it says that they were circumcised, um, meaning they were, they were good Jews, and they had some bulletproof, biblically-based objections to Peter eating and staying with these Gentiles. The Levitical laws were crystal clear. You should not eat certain things or be seen with certain people as a Jew, period. If you think, well, maybe Jesus said something about this, or maybe, maybe that all changed. Um, no, Jesus in Matthew 5 doubles down strongly when he says, referencing the law, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You can read more about how strongly he words that. So these, these newish Christians that confront Peter are acting in a way that I, frankly, I would hope that our elders, our leadership team, um, the, the church community as a whole would act if, let's say, I or Joel or Ken or 
uh, Sarah or Christy came back from a trip where it was found out that they had deviated pretty significantly from our orthodox understanding of, of how the gospel works. First um, John, which they, they obviously wouldn't have had access to, says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they're from God or not, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I think Peter's response to them, had he exploded and said, uh, you know, curses to you all, his response and the witness also of his six friends who, who were there through that must have been infused with the power of the Holy Spirit. So that these Jerusalem believers, these, these people who were right in their question, not only accepted his words, but it says they rejoiced. Had that not happened, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Like, physically, like we, we wouldn't be here because this whole shift came down to Peter having a dream and the Holy Spirit working through that dream to the message, to the response of those, uh, those believers. So uh, the, the next thing I want to do is look at, okay, how do we apply this to our world right now? And there's six, seven, 20 different rabbit holes that I could fall down with this, but I'm going to try to focus on a couple that we can chew on today. Um, the first is, and, and before I go there, that I that I think we can we can pull from this passage and not be uh, bastardizing the passage. Like there are actual um, principles that I think we can pull from. How do you and I react when something we believe in strongly is challenged? Uh, I will win the cliche redundancy award by saying we are living in a divided time. There are forces and companies behind those forces, namely the need for profit, that have found that polarizing people is a great way to control them. Less so much for a political end or a social end, but more for an economic benefit. The byproduct of this strategy is what we've witnessed over the past few months in the run-up to the election. It's been around a long time, but I think we've really felt it in the run-up to this election. As humans, we're very quick to defend ourselves and our stances against threats. If you challenge me, then I'll challenge you back more. If you question me and the things that make me feel safe, not only will I distance myself from you because you're disagreeable and dangerous, but I most likely will attack you and the thing that makes you feel safe, which in turn makes you distance yourself from me and attack me, and now we rinse and repeat, uh, and, and we see this. Uh, we're being asked or we're being pressured to give up what I would call the, our repentance that leads to life in exchange for an ideology that leads to perception of safety. So I'm going to read that again because I think that's I think it's really important. We're being asked, they're being pressured to give up our need for repentance that leads to life in exchange for an ideology that leads to perception of safety. In the ideology, there there are a thousand to choose from. So I'm not picking on any one. If it if it's 
asking you to exchange your need for repentance personally, then you may want to question it. Now, I'd love to believe that this only affects some people out there, but it's rampant in the church right now. I mean, the, the church, bigger church. And it's something that I struggle with daily. Um, I've had to pull myself off of Facebook, um, partly just to free up headspace. But the more I realize that kind of how the game is working and how companies are trying to pull me one way or the other um, is not really, I, I don't want to be a pawn in someone else's game. Um, I, I know it works in me. I know that the, the algorithms and all of that are effective because I have to deal with them. I tend to lose patience quickly with people who espouse certain ideas or anything that deviates from my perception of safety. If our faith like Peter's is in the power of Jesus Christ and the gospel and in the repentance that leads to life, then I probably wouldn't be so emotionally inflamed when people question my worldview. And I think you probably wouldn't be so emotionally inflamed when people question your worldview if your self is rooted in the repentance that leads to life. If our faith is in the power of our worldview and how we think the story that should go, then we will constantly be defensive and emotionally irritated. So this morning, I know I'm, I'm speaking to a, a broad audience. For the most part, I would say that we've been around the church or Christianity, um, but there may be people curious. There may be people who are uh, hearing this kind of stuff for the first time, but really no matter where you are on the spectrum, if your anger and frustration at them is greater than your compassion for them, then you need to reevaluate what God has offered you as a son or daughter of God in this repentance that leads to life. If my hope is to convince you of anything more than the repentance that leads to life that I've been offered, then I probably need to rethink things. I think of that verse in Ephesians, and I probably don't think of it enough uh, when I'm pronouncing my judgment on those that are stupid or ill-informed or naive or have a different philosophy that says, once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. So the part that I want to focus on there is once you are full of darkness, it is amazing to me how quickly I can go from needing repentance to needing to exercise judgment on somebody else. So I want to talk a, a little bit more about kind of our, our culture today. And this is a little bit tricky but I think it's worth discussing and praying through. Um, we can look at this text and think about how absurd it is for Jewish Christians to be dismissive of Gentile or Greek Christians. Like, you know, they're, they're a little less than. And we could say, you know, that's primitive or that's shallow or how tribal. But these are common phrases that I've heard in the last year, in, in 2020, 21. There's no way that person's a Christian. Well, he's, he's not a real Catholic. You know, they're so, they are so incredibly liberal. I don't know how they could still be considered a Christian. Or they're so incredibly conservative. I don't know how they could still be considered a Christian. You know, they go to church, but they aren't really Christians. 
you know, I wonder if that church knows that so-and-so goes there. You know, yeah, they're, they're Christian, but they're kind of like Christian light. So you may have your own bullets that you want to add to this list. Rob said last week that he's sometimes judgmental, and I, I don't think he's alone. I think all of us have to deal with our tribal and judgmental um, uh, mentalities. And we do so because in practicality, when we forget that we need the repentance that leads to life, we're setting ourselves up as our own messiahs. So Peter had learned that the offensive but freeing nature of the gospel released him from needing to be defensive. He wasn't defending his worldview. The gospel enveloped him, and he, couldn't, he didn't need to defend this. The early church had enough humility, and this is, this is those people who confronted him when he uh, came back. They had enough humility to rejoice when they heard of another culture experiencing that repentance that leads to life. Now, this is the tricky part. I find myself wanting to offer and talk about all of the benefits of freedom and kind of the, the, the brochure version of the gospel. Like, oh, look at this page. You have a connection with God and you have, um, you have forgiveness of sins and all, all of this great stuff. But it's harder for me to sometimes start with I, me, I need to repent today. That is, the, that is the, the basis of the gospel is I need to repent, I need forgiveness, then I can offer that to you. And we, especially in New England, we like to focus on our creativity, our ingenuity, kind of our, our stalwartness, our work, stalwartness, our work ethic. And those are all great things, but we need to start with the repentance that leads to life. It's true humility that acknowledges our need our weakness, our short-sightedness, and brokenness. And in that acknowledgement, that's when we're offered the life that is not our own, and it's not in need of defending. So to wrap up, this experience by Peter and the acceptance of the experience by those early Jewish Christians, I said this before, is, is actually what leads us here today. Now, I don't know if we're going to be asked to change our views on what is clean or unclean. I don't know if in our lifetime someone will have another vision or be confronted by a story, if we as a church are going to be confronted by a story like Peter's. But I pray for wisdom and discernment for all of us to have an ex experiential understanding of the repentance that leads to life. And that not just that, but that we would have the humility to share it. Now, Joe, I think Joel is going to come up and lead us through communion. Uh, thank you, Ethan. Um, yes, some of the LT members are grabbing communion elements. I think everyone who's in the room has been with us as we've done this before, so I know how it works. But they'll come around with a basket and some individual cups. Just let them know how many you need for your table if you'd like to take communion with us. And just ask you to wait until... Uh, I'll let you know when to actually open them up once everyone has it. We like to try to intentionally take them all together as a corporate act. And then after we do this, I'll give some announcements in our closing benediction prayer. But um, I just encourage you, I was really struck by a lot of what Ethan shared from our story. Um, 
the phrase repentance that leads to life is really resonating with me right now. Um, and also the notion of God doing unexpected things outside of our paradigm. And I'm struck by, as we're taking, getting ready to take communion, we are doing an action this morning that points to, in some ways, the ultimate unexpected thing that God did, which was walk towards the cross. The, the juice in the cup and the wafer inside the cup point to the body that was broken and the blood that was spilled in that act of supreme, ultimate, divine love and self-giving. Um, so I think everyone has a, has a cup now, so I invite you to open the top, uh, take out the wafer, um, dip it into the juice, and take it together. Those of you on Zoom, um, Feel free to take your own elements if you have them now. But I, I invite you to prayerfully take this in remembrance of the one whose body and blood were spilt for you, for us, for the world. And even more unexpected than the death on the cross was the victorious emergence from the tomb three days later. And that's why we're here. Pray with me, if you would. Lord, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your servant, Peter, who demonstrated such humility and willingness to learn and willingness to know more of you, even after having been through so much in our story today. Um, I pray that we would be compelled towards the same humble repentance that leads to life, that we would know more and more deeply and truly who you are and what you're doing amongst us and in our city and in our world today. Thank you for this time to be together this morning in the midst of everything that's going on. Lord, I pray that we would be drawn more and more into your heart, um, more and closer to each other. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.